Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today, I'd like to have you make the case, as you did recently in National Review, for the Trump presidency. The president now has a year under his belt, and by your judgment, as expressed in the piece, has a lot to show for it. So why don't we just start with a few specific policy areas, kind of look at the year behind us. I'll have you begin with uh, economics. The the one area where with the tax bill, uh, president had a big legislative accomplishment in his first year. How has the president done on the economic front so far? Well, I, I think his two big achievements were the deregulation and the psychological messaging that it's okay to profit and you don't have to check yourself you've made too much money or you didn't build that and i say that because the economy started to grow at a quarterly rate of over three percent before the tax cuts and we're we're nearing a peacetime unemployment rate of about four percent if we get low lower than four and i think we will it'll be it'll be historic and then when we look at these indicators of business and consumer or corporate confidence, they're all up. Stock market's a roller coaster, but it's still about 500 points, 5,000 points higher than when he came into office. So those are all pretty good. And then we don't know the full effect because the tax cuts really don't really start on the withholding to this month. So I, I think it's been pretty good. And then that's in addition to we're now the large we're we're now the second largest oil producer in the world and by the end of the year we'll be, we're going to be the largest so when you open up offshore and federal new federal leasing in anwar i think we're going to see a level of energy production that no one ever anticipated how about immigration victor as of when we're taping this the daca situation is still not resolved and the border wall, which was one of the central promises of the president's campaign, still not been authorized. These are both things that are on the table right now. So how, how do we grade the president thus far on immigration? Well, I'd say an A for effort, but probably a, a C or B for maybe a B because it depends on who you whom you read. But we're about 60 percent fall off in illegal immigration crossing. So that's really good. And you can see the effects on a place where I live because suddenly there's signs in almost every window, you know, help wanted, truckers wanted, welders wanted, and the labor uh, rate has been going up and it's up to about $16 an hour in agriculture. So that's been pretty good. But it's kind of ironic because he's now got an offer to take twice as many DACA as the Democrats initially asked for. And yet it's more psychological, their reluctance, because I don't think if you ask most people in the United States or even the Democratic Party, do you oppose chain migration or lottery, the visa lottery, or even the wall, they they wouldn't have a problem to get DACA. But apparently the new wild card in the equation is that they cannot under any circumstances going into a midterm give him any momentum. Because Trump being Trump, of course, like all politicians, but to the nth degree would start bragging that he he cut a great deal. So I don't think that's a winning situation for the Democrats because they're going to run that they offered twice as many DACA slots as the Democrats and they turned it down. And as far as the base goes, you know, 10 10 years to become citizen. And if you start deporting people who are on public assistance and 
who committed a criminal act, that's pretty good because it, it, it allow the real DACA to be filtered out over that decade long process. The last sort of specific issue area that I'll ask you about, but it's a big one, is foreign policy. It strikes me that back during the campaign, a lot of people who broadly shared your views on foreign policy were worried about Trump. They saw this instinct towards what they thought was retreating from the world, thought that he might disrupt NATO, thought he might be too provocative or or unstable a force. And there are still some people who might make that case on issues like North Korea or uh, moving the Israeli capital to Jerusalem. How do you judge him as commander-in-chief a year in? Well, I, I I read those sort of paint-by-numbers, art-of-the-deal, art-of-the-combat books, and he said in there that most of what he does is braggadocio. He asks for 90%, he settles for 51%. So I think I wrote at the time that a lot of NATO countries were, were freeloaders and that sober and judicious negotiations hadn't resulted in much. So Trump went way beyond and threatened to question the very viability of NATO. And now we're getting, I think six of them are agreeing to go up to 2%. And I think that's pretty much what we've seen throughout. So he's outsourced to a degree that we've never seen before as far as the latitude that he's allowed uh, Mattis and McMaster and Haley and Pompeo and Tillerson. And so they're trying to restore deterrence without getting in a war. And so for the first time, we found out that North Koreans had a missile that could reach us. We beefed up the sanctions. ISIS is destroyed. I think there's a realism now about Putin that we're not going from, you know, he's he he's he deserves reset. He's a partner to his worst thing since Satan under the Obama administration. They're trying to find a way to prune back the Iran, Iran deal. I think they're going to find that. And so I, I guess what I'm saying, there's a new realistic look at China, who the last eight years built this this terrible Spratly Islands base right in the middle of the South China Sea. So it's very slow, but I think what we're seeing is a gradual Mattis-McMaster-Tillerson effort to restore deterrence, which I think is going to make us a lot safer. And he beefed up the defense budget. Where I'm critical is is I'm I'm worried about the budget, obviously. The, you can't have a Republican Party that ankle bites or more uh, muscularly criticizes Obama and then runs up big deficits. Victor, you can draw a pretty straight line from the liberal opposition to President Trump during the campaign to the liberal opposition to him today. That is somewhat harder to do, though, with the never-Trump Republicans, or, or at least the contingent of them whose opposition to him was primarily rooted in the fear that his administration would not be particularly conservative. One of the big surprises for a lot of people in that camp was how, how many long-standing conservative goals of a type that I think you could probably say many more centrist Republicans probably wouldn't have taken up. This administration has actively embraced. With that in mind, what do you judge to be the state of the never Trump movement today? Well, we have to frame that question with it. Ninety percent of Republicans, we think, according to most polls, voted for Trump. So I think Romney got 92 and McCain got 90. So they had virtually no influence whatsoever on the electorate. They didn't win him or they didn't lose him the election. They wouldn't have lost him the election. They were irrelevant. But um, for the the ones, the 30 or 40 who were pundits or makers of public opinion, I think most of them still, 
because there's Trump footprints on his conservative uh, agenda, they feel it's polluted. And by that, I mean, for the last eight years, I have read that we have to move the embassy to Jerusalem. We got to get out of this parrot last couple of years as parrots, sham, uh, climate accord. We got to start drilling. We have to have charter schools. Um, we've got to turn, return immigration to a legal system. And all of a sudden, Trump did that, not to mention the economic things that we discussed. And suddenly they either don't like those issues now or they're just because Trump is the author of them or the promulgator of them. They don't, they don't, uh, claim apparency for them. And then the second thing is, um, they make an argument that's untenable. And the argument is, well, okay, I like his conservative agenda. And maybe it's even more conservative than what McCain or Romney or any of the two Bushes, the two Bushes, excuse me, would have done. But he's so uncouth and crude. We've never seen him. Uh, we never seen anybody like him in the White House. And that that's not tenable because Trump is a, is a symbol of the high-tech, internet, Twitter, um, hang it, let it hang out age in journalism. We, we're not going back and seeing LBJ's real life in the White House or JFK. If I said to you, well, Trump just had sex with, a, with an 18-year-old intern in the presidential bed, or we have 11 witnesses that said Trump unzipped his pants and exposed himself, or Trump just lied in a deposition to the special counsel about his sexual relationship in the bathroom off the Oval Office. I could keep doing this ad nauseum, and not just since 1960. I could go back to Warren Harding, or I could go back to Roosevelt using his daughter as a conduit to have an affair in, in the White House. So I, I don't understand how they think that he's just different in, in a way that we've never seen before, other than he doesn't have a political experience. But we've seen a lot a lot cruder and more uh, crass people than Trump. It's just that we didn't know about it because of the the decorum and the so-called uh, stature of the office uh, prevented journalists from divulging that information. As we've seen more and more positive economic indicators, there's been a growing narrative that on the basis of the economy, the wind should be at the president's back going into the midterms, but that he's got these low approval numbers and that he's likely to self-sabotage this whole thing because of the distractions and the divisions that come from his personality, essentially, the tweeting, the rhetoric, etc. Curious how much you buy that and also what you think the major variables will be in determining the outcomes of the midterms. Well, you're absolutely right that given this extraordinary economic news and the tax uh, reform and reduction bill and then what we're seeing overseas, you would think that Trump should be in the mid-50s approval rating when he's – I think the most optimistic is Rasmussen has him 48 or 49. And so the traditional exegesis is – if he would just shut up or he would just stop tweeting and let his record speak for itself, and I think I pretty much wrote that in a recent National Review article, then we'll see his numbers. But I'm not sure that I was right about that, that the more that I watch him every day. And, and by that, I mean we've never had a 
if the Obama girls were getting powder in the mail, like Trump's daughter did today, that may have been a toxic substance, or Obama was said to have moved Martin Luther King's bust out of the White House, or um, from day one, there had been a special prosecutor going after Obama every day on his, let's say there was a cabal of uh, somebody had alleged in opposition research John McCain had alleged that Obama had been consorting with radicals in Chicago, Farrakhan, uh, Bill uh, Ayers, et cetera, et cetera, and that they had ties with the Russians. They got a special investigator, and that that dossier that he used was paid for by the McCain. So what I'm getting at is if it was on the shoes on the other foot, I don't know how these other people would react. Because I think he's really been in a unique situation, Trump. We've never seen this level of vituperation. Nobody held Obama's, a facsimile of Obama's head up and said, you know, this is Obama the way that Kathy Griffin did with Trump. Or with, they, he wasn't ritually stabbed every night in a Shakespearean play. So I'm not sure that uh, you can ask Trump not to react that way. We've never seen a special counsel just been on leash since Scooter Libby and Patrick Fitzgerald. So I'm somewhat sympathetic that he's basically saying, I'm not going to play by the the Marcus of Queensbury rules. Would I do what he's saying and what I do? No, I wouldn't. But I think that a lot of us have been proven wrong, that he's he's human and he's they're out to destroy him and they're out to destroy his family and he's reacting in a, uh, a basic animal retaliation and there's a lot of people in the country that not only like that but like that and are not picked up in the polls so if he's if he's polling 48 or 49 approval i have a sneaking suspicion it's more like 52 or 53 because i i hear all the time when i'm on an airplane or when i'm speaking somebody will come up to me and say i didn't vote for him but i'm for him now and when you get you add into that matrix or equation the Democratic Party, which is just identity politics twenty four seven, and it's an exclusionary, angry politics, it doesn't it. I don't see that there's an alternative to him in the mind of more and more Americans. Maybe fifty two or fifty three percent. Remember, he won with forty six percent of the population, and that's another thing that pundits are not reminding us that a Trump voter is more important than I am in California because he's in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Ohio. And my vote is irrelevant in California. To this point about how the president's responding, I'd like to get you to expand on a, a wonderful analogy from your national review piece where you wrote, this is the quote, Trump apparently fights his war against the media in the fashion in which toxic chemotherapy battles cancer. Explain that. Well, I think he thinks that the media is so unhinged and it was so pro-Obama. And remember, they declared him a god and able to make their legs tingle or on the basis of his perfectly creased pants leg. And I'm quoting directly now. And that Trump is so awful and, you know, he's done all these terrible things that he, he just felt that the Marcus of Queensbury rules were no longer applicable. So just as chemotherapy is necessary to kill this cancer, he was going to fight back in such a way that the media would have a meltdown and they would melt down as cancer does before chemotherapy kills the patient, patient being us. So I think what's happened, if you look at the 
poll numbers on Trump versus CNN or Trump versus NBC, Trump polls higher and people, he's absolutely destroyed most of the people who he's got in these existential fights with. And by that, I mean, ask yourself, is the NFL better off ratings wise and attendance wise and income wise and reputation wise after he got, they got into it with Trump is, uh, any of is Kathy Griffin better off? Is Lindsey Graham better off? Is John McCain better off? Is I don't mean I mean I don't want to meet McCarb about his illness, but most of the individuals who went into is Jeff Flake better off? Is Bob Corker better off? And I think Trump's view is that he's so hated that he's going to be sort of chemo or radiation, and he's going to solve the problem that was that no of the other approaches used. And then his opponents or his detractors are going to melt down before he does. Last thing that I'll ask you, finish the sentence for me. If the Democrats take over Congress after the midterms, then what? If the Democrats take over Congress, they've mortgaged themselves to the identity politics base. So they're going to introduce articles impeachment in the house and I don't know what the grounds will be. It'll probably be not on collusion. It will probably be not on obstruction. It'll probably be on some sexual harassment, me too type of charge. And then it will go to the Senate. And I think, I guess by that term, you meant they would lose the Senate, the Republicans. But if they do lose the Senate, it's going to be more like 48, 52. And there's not going to be the votes in the Senate to convict him. So we're going to see a impeached president. And then another year or so of con- drawn out deliberations, and he's going to be acquitted because he won't quit. He'll be acquitted in the Senate, sort of like Bill Clinton. But he's sort of like Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton, remember, had a successful second term even, and he left office with a 63% approval rating. So it's a way of obstructing or slowing down. It's a, the intensive version of the emolument suits or the suing under the 25th Amendment or trying to subvert the Electoral College vo- uh, voters. It's just the, to the nth degree. So that I think they will impeach him, and I think he will be easily acquitted. All right. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to the Classicist Podcast. If you haven't already, remember to pick up Victor's new book. It's called The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. If you enjoy the Classicist, please rate the show on iTunes. And we'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.